look at this passage. Now what I handed out to you includes verses 18 to 27, which we studied last week. You'll notice I put them in smaller font and, you know, crammed them all together, partly so I could get all of this on one page. Uh, But this is to give you the overall view of what Paul's writing means. Because when we pull out particular verses, remember we tend to lose the context in which they sit. And so last week we looked at kind of this theme where Paul's talking about the groanings of creation and then the groanings of ourselves and then how the the Spirit comes in and gives us support. (coughs) And then there's this seeming twist and yet it's connected to the whole reason, the whole purpose behind it all. So if you look up in verse 18, it says, I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy, comparing to the glory of that which is to be revealed to us. Then he kind of explains that. Then he comes back to, well, if that's happening, what's the purpose? What's the point? So let's read together verses 28 to 30. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he he called, he also justified. And those who he justified, he also glorified. Now you'll notice, I re-then revamped these last two verses, taking out, I'm not going to say extraneous words, but to focus on the theological words in that particular section. So it reads a little differently. For those God foreknew, he also predestined. For those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. All right. Now, I have been saving a particular thing for this class for quite a while, and um, I figured today would be a good day to bring out my can of worms. Yes, this is a literal can of worms. I am not going, I'll threaten to open it, um, because in these last two verses, we're basically dealing with the entire issue of predestination and glorification is like, okay, that's easy. Let's do that in 30 minutes. Um, so be careful. Oh, weird. It shakes. There's actual worms in here. Okay. So I'll pass it around if you're interested. You can, you can buy this at Amazon, uh, which I did. I thought there's no way that there's an actual can of worms that you can buy. And it's a great illustration that... Yeah, it's very high protein, so if you want to add it to your uh, breakfast juices, go right ahead. Uh, anyway, I just thought that would just lighten the, lo- the, the mood a little bit. Because we are going to be diving into some very fertile ground, no pun intended, with the worms, um, that in some places are extremely controversial. But 
before we get to the controversial part, let's deal with verse 28. Probably one of the most misused verses in all of the Bible. Partly because of the construct in the King James Bible is different than what you have in front of you. The King James Version reads, All things work together for good to them that love God and are called according to His purpose. And everyone would stop after the word good. And they would quote, All things work together for good. And, in, and use it in all the wrong contexts and in all the wrong ways. Well, you'll notice that the ESV and many of the modern translations do not start with that phrase. The ESV starts with, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. I think there's a bit of intentionality there so that it corrects a misunderstanding of the verse, but also the ESV and modern translations follow the Greek better. The Greek does not start with all things work together for good. That is not the construct. So for whatever reason, whatever t- t- context or purpose that the, uh, the, those that were putting together the King James Bible, it ended up being misapplied and misused, which has created much consternation and much trouble. And I, I've, I don't know how many times I've heard it. Someone says something goes bad and it says, oh, you know, remember, God works all things for good. Oh, uh, okay. It, you can put it on a pillow, you know, you can put it on a poster and it looks good, but it's not what is intended here. There's something bigger going on, which is another reason why I handed you the entire context in Romans, so you can see it in light of everything else. If you were to remove verses 19 to 27, you would have this construct. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And we know that those who love God, for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. Suddenly, it makes a little bit more sense. But we tend to not do that. We tend to pull this verse out and then uh, misapply it. Whenever we get into these conversations and these discussions, there's a few things we need to look at. First, you have to start with the words, and we know. It's a little frustrating to have Paul write, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Because in verse 26, it says, we do not know. Well, now I'm confused. He just said we don't know, and now he says we know. Well, obviously there are two different contexts, but it's the same idea. In one we don't know, and the other we do. <coughs> well, verse 26 is obviously, see, it even says so, we don't know what to pray for. And there we wrestle with the details of what God is doing in our lives. It's a veritable puzzle. We struggle with this, how do I live my Christian life? How do I live this life to which I have been called? 
But in this verse, we know that God has a purpose and a plan. It's not an issue of what you pray for. That's not the topic now. The topic is a different topic. Steve, I need to just uh, clarify. Yeah. I have an NIV, mm-hmm. and it says, verse 28, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. Yeah, I know. The NIV is very frustrating. <laughs> in many, many ways. In fact, I have one particular commentator that all he does is tear apart the NIV's construct, saying they are interpreting it even more differently than what the Greek has. And it's a little frustrating when you have a very popular translation that very subtly, just in the English construct, we have to pull it back to the Greek construct. And I just, I'm not, I don't want to get too far into it because we'll get into some very deep weeds. Uh, Just to say that you pointed out something right away, uh, that you have to make sure anytime, don't always trust the ESV either, oh my goodness sake, don't think that this is an inerrant scripture. It is a translation. So, because we have a person who is bilingual and fluent, are there different translations in French? Yes. Do they agree with each other? No. Bingo. The same problem you have when you're trying to teach to a French-speaking people and you have two different versions which could disagree not on major points, but on fine points of the grammatical construction of a sentence. Suddenly you have to step back and go, okay, let's go back to the original and then try to figure it out. And guess what? They're both wrong. And this is what we have to struggle with. Oh yeah, people are enjoying their can of worms. So it's almost made it all the way back. Yes, it's the real thing, my friends. If anybody opens it, I'm going to be really upset. (laughs) I'm the only one who gets to open the can of worms. Okay. So, We start with the we know. The next thing we look at is the all things. Well, what things? I mean, isn't things kind of a broad term? Uh, And the word all is kind of broad. So, all things? So, going back to, well, 17 and 18 could refer to sufferings. Isn't that kind of the theme? It's kind of the theme, but... So is he only talking about suffering? No. Because he's saying that they're good. So now we've got another conundrum, just even in our understanding. So I even wrote here, so if if God works all things together for good, does that mean all things are good? Well, no. Not necessarily. So, guess what? Let's start looking at the word good. Boy, we're getting really into this now. We have to define what we're talking about. Otherwise, we can't really discuss the meaning. If God works all things for good, then why do we suffer? 
as I wrote here, this appears to be an empty promise. It's something you say when patting someone on the back. They're there. All things work together for good. And yet, that can't be what the scripture is saying. This isn't an empty promise. This isn't some casual, you know, Hallmark card sentiment. We all suffer. All of us. We all have suffering stories we can tell. Every one of us in this room. I'm not a pastor. I cannot, fa- I cannot fathom the litany of human pain and suffering that pass through the doors of our church office. I can't fathom it. Every day there's got to be another phone call or a letter or someone walking in where life has suddenly collapsed in some form or fashion. But I get a taste every week. We get the prayer requests. Some are, you know, generic or they're, you know, here's an event that we're trying to to accomplish, but some are very personal. And then we, you know, we tend to, I don't know how many places in our country weekly focus on the persecuted church seems to be one of the forgotten things in our our community and then I think of my work now I work as a literary agent you may or may not understand what that means but it basically means I represent authors and their works uh, kind of a manager of an author's uh, uh, professional life That means that people who want to have their work represented to a major publisher needs to come to me with a proposal or a pitch. And I get 50 new pitches a week. So that's around 2,500 a year. And last year I took one of them. Now, that can sound very arrogant and I have to be very careful how I phrase this. Um, so I, I wrote a, a blog a few years ago called When Your Book Becomes Personal. And I said, if you had any idea of what crosses my desk, it's breathtaking. And I'm, I'm quoting myself now, and sometimes heartbreaking. I wrote down a selection of the true stories that have recently crossed my desk. And this is a small sampling, shows real life events that inspired a writer to write their book, to create a proposal, and bravely approach a literary agency. The amount of difficulty, pain, and suffering in these lives, in these strangers, is astounding. And remember, this is just a small sampling of the nonfiction proposals we receive. The list includes brain tumor, deliverance from demons, struggling of being a single parent, death of a child, multiple proposals, 
Domestic violence. Husband announces he's gay. Terminal cancer. Multiple proposals. Murder of a family member. A marriage book inspired by the death of a wife with whom the writer, writer had been married 60 years. Sexual addiction of a husband. More than one proposal. Medical malpractice. Chronic illness. Multiple proposals. Sexual assault. Divorce. Coming out of a homosexual lifestyle. Each one of those represents a person or a family affected in a significant way. And when I spend the better part of a day reading these proposals, I become numb. Not from a lack of feeling, but from too much feeling. And the hardest part is saying no to every single one of them. No thank you. Sorry, we cannot represent your project. Now there's, that opens a whole other can of worms. Um, but I have a sense of seeing this suffering, universal, everywhere. All believers who love God and are called according to His purpose. And this verse says, working together for good. So, we like this verse when things are going well. In fact, that's usually when we claim it. Ooh, you know, got that raise, all things work together for good. I stuck with it. No, that's not quite what it means. But to fully appreciate this promise, and that's what this verse is, it's a promise. It's a declaration. And to find out what it truly means, there are a few things we have to further define. So it just doesn't become a sentiment. Number one, and I'm, I will not ask this rhetorically, I'm going to ask, who is this verse or this promise or this declaration for? Who is it for? Hmm? For Christians, for those who love God and are what? Called according to his purpose. Because I even wrote here, I put it in a little box. But, but I love God. I want the good stuff. Uh, okay, but are you called? Are you living that life? Or are you just saying that because you want to say you're a good person? How often do you hear that? Oh, they're a good person. Yeah, they're the ones who, you know, murdered seven people yesterday. But they're, they're a good person. I, I never knew anything bad about them. Really? He's basically a good person. He's a basically a good person. Exactly. <laughs> Right, right. It's basically good. And we have to understand, well, if you look at Romans, especially the first part of the, uh, the book, ain't nobody good. Nobody. Nobody qualifies. For those who love God and are called, and then the word called is placed in verse 30. 
Do I have that right? Verse 30? Yeah. Verse 30. In the middle of a large chain. But not good, not all good for all people. We have to be very careful here because there is a sentiment to use that word, overuse that word here this morning, of universalism. That God is a God of love. Only. He's not a God of judgment. He would never punish anybody. He has the best interest in mind for every individual on the planet. And the answer is, certainly he does. But, you can't say he's just going to dole it out willy-nilly. There is a penalty for sin, and the wages of sin is death. We can't get around that. We may not feel comfortable with it, but we have to address it. Next, we have to define the word good. So how do we find the word good? All right. Does good mean that we're rich? No. Oh, okay. Um, how about healthy? Uh, no. Um, admired. Uh, all things together for good, so you'll be admired. No, no, that's not. Successful. I know. That's the American definition of good. Successful. No. Um, happy. Blessed are the happy. Isn't that scriptural? Mm, well, yeah, but no. So how do we define good? If you are going to quote this verse, if you are going to embrace this promise, you have to define the promise that is, that is embraceable. So what do you think is the good that is being described in this verse? What is that good? Anybody? Go ahead. I sort of guess. Ultimately being justified and glorified. Almost. Close. Just before that. Predestined. Predestined to the conforming to the image of Christ. That is the good. You see how that works? Go ahead. So it's like when Jesus said, nobody's good but God. And that's basically what it's saying. Everything's working together for God. God yeah. For God's purpose, not for ours. And the only reason it works out for us is because He is inside of us. Exactly. <laughs> it's this seemingly. Oh, it's so hard to comprehend. Well, that's the point. It's not supposed to be simple. We wrestle with this because the good, the all things for good, that good is the conforming to the image of his son. Yeah. I was thinking along these lines, it's like, you know, when God says uh, about Paul, I, I'm to show him how much he's going to suffer for my sake. Yeah. It's like Paul deserved to suffer all those things because he was a person. Of oh, course, he was such a bad guy. Yeah, yeah, he deserved those things. Yeah. But because he suffers them in Christ, therefore his glory instead of his damnation. And we deserve all the evil that come into our life. 
So the fact that God, all this evil that we deserve comes in our life, but God can take it and not have it be for our damnation, but our salvation, glorification in Christ, to be like him, to be ultimately, I mean, so whatever comes in, even martyrdom or anything that comes into our lives, we know it's going to be good. It's not, because I think that's what happens when we go through suffering, Satan says to us, you, you are getting this because you deserve it. And the answer is, yeah, I do deserve it, and much worse. Right. But God's not doing it because he's angry with me and hates me. He's doing it because he's conformed me into the image of his son. Right. And right. It ends in, it's counterintuitive. Yeah. Completely counterintuitive. And in our English language, especially in our modernistic understanding of good, we think good means rich, healthy, happy, successful, and admired. And God's saying, well, that's nice for you. It doesn't glorify me. And that's the whole point, is to conform you to be the image of my son, who is me. So you become like Christ, like me, inside all of this seemingly difficult, I shouldn't say seemingly, but actually difficult times. Here's another little tweet, little, little twist here. The Greek word good is the Greek word agathon, A-G-A-T-H-O-N, agathon. That is the Greek word to mean having something that is inherently good in and of itself. There is another very common Greek word for good and it's the word kalos, K-A-L-O-S. And that means something that looks good on the outside. So it looks good, it looks wonderful, but it may not be so good underneath. So Paul, in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, chose the word good to mean something that in its very essence, in its, in its entire fiber, is good. And that's conforming to his son. Not something that looks good and is pleasing to the eye. It's not superficial. And think about that for a moment. God works all things together for that which is inherently good. It's better than what even we could concoct if it was up to our imagination. Because our imagination is so limited to our uh, worldly defini definitions of what that looks like. You can go to find a, a, another interesting use of this word in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 8. I have to thank some of these great biblical scholars who, who I get to read in preparation for this class to find verses like this. God, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness, this is chapter 8, verses 15 and 16. <coughs> God, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents, scorpions, thirsty ground where there's no water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock, 
who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. Wait. Great and terrifying wilderness, fiery serpents, scorpions, sounds like Arizona. Um, Thirsty ground, no water, but I brought you water out of a flinty rock. I fed you with manna that you didn't understand to humble you, test you, to do you good in the end. And this is all part of this bigger plan. So, another definition. Is there then good in bad things? You have to be careful. We can't teach that sickness, suffering, persecution, hatred are good in themselves. They are not. They are a result, as you hinted, they are a result of the evils of a broken and sinful society. Even such that we saw in our passage earlier, like last week, where even creation is groaning. And there's got to be something better than this. We know there is. God created us for perfection, and it's not perfect. (coughs) Another one. This is not a verse about feelings. It says we know. It doesn't say we feel, you know. We feel that those who love God and are called according to his purpose, that things are good things are going to happen. We we feel it. Nope. That's part of the problem I with any sort of depression or self-talk that puts you in a position of saying no, it's just just not all going to happen for me because I don't feel it. I don't feel good about this. I don't see it. So if I can't see it and feel it, it must not happen. Right? Well, Remember that we rarely see or feel God at work. He's working right now in your life at this very moment. Right now. And how do I know that? Because scripture says we know that he is at work. Not that we can go, oh, that I it's later. Usually when we look back we go, ah, That bright, flashing, strobing light, I guess I should have seen that. But I was blind to it. And now when I look back, I'm like, okay, yeah, God, yeah, God is actually taking care of it. So I wrote here, (coughs) no matter what befalls us, this verse holds true. Hold on to it. And this week, read this verse and all the rest that follow through verse 39. And it will all make sense. Because then it all pulls it together. But that's not where we're at today. 
Philippians 1.6 says, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. And because we tend to not see things, the uh, great Puritan writer Thomas Watson has a fascinating illustration. By the way, if you're ever interested in reading an entire book on verse 828, that's this. 120 pages on Romans 8.28 by Thomas Watson. He's my favorite of all the Puritans, by the way, because he's the one who's easiest to read. (laughs) And um, (coughs) his style, while dense, is not anywhere close to the density of all the other Puritans. But what makes this particular little book fascinating to me is its history. He wrote it in and it was published in 1663, just a couple years ago, in England, one year after what was called the Great Ejection. In 1662, the Church of England was so upset with the Puritan church leaders who were preaching the gospel message and not a message of the... Uh, government understanding of the church were saying that the government was corrupt and sinful and that everyone should turn their faces back to the gospel and toward Jesus Christ, the Church of England ejected 2,000 of the pastors, stripped them of their titles as the heads of their churches and kicked them out. In other words, fired them all, which meant none of them had a job none of them could have a way of making a living. They could no longer be paid and were no longer to be hired by anyone. So they were not only fired, they were blackballed by the Church of England in their profession. And he writes, all things for good. At one point in the, uh, in the book, he, he talks about not being able to see God's goodness. He says, it's kind of like the sundial. And I thought, what? Oh, right, they didn't have wristwatches. Um, they didn't have their phones. Um, he said, so if you're riding down the road and the sun is shining and you see a sundial and you're curious what time it is, you will stop and go over and look. Like, oh, it looks like it's about two o'clock. Okay. However, if you're riding down the road and it's cloudy, you will not stop and look at the sundial because it's a dark and dreary day. So the thing is, the sun is still shining. It's not shining on the sundial. And that's our problem. We only look to God's guidance when the sun is shining, not when it's cloudy. And it's at those times when we actually need to be very aware of his presence and guidance. All things, all times, all God. That's the message here. So now we get into the real fun part called theological controversy. The five great doctrines 
of salvation. You have them right there in your, your chart at the bottom, your list. Foreknew, predestined, called, justified, and glorified. Now, these are not the five solas that uh, Pastor Jim's preached about and were on the Reformation. These are simply five great links, or these are actually called the golden chain, for those of you who are curious. They uh, actually have been given a name in theological circles called the golden chain. And the reason why, uh, <coughs> something I didn't know, that actually has a name for it. It's a rhetorical device called a, so, a sorites. S-O-R-I-T-E-S. Sorites. A sorites is a stair-step or a chain argument. We find the chain argument in uh, Romans 3, I'm sorry, Romans 5, verses 3 through 5. We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. So you see that chain? You also will see it again. Paul uses it again and over in chapter 10, verses 14 and 15. And how are they to call on him in whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in him in whom they have never heard? How are they to hear whom without someone preaching? And how can they preach unless they're sent? Hmm, sounds like something was preached this morning. A soriti. And here we have the golden chain. Now, um, I'll put it this way. Paul isn't necessarily trying to express the systematic theology of the events of salvation. These are some of them, but not necessarily all of them. In fact, I'm just going to rattle this off just because I can. And because I looked it up, so you're going to listen. Um, <coughs> the typical ordo, ordo salutis, or order of salvation... Foreknowledge, predestination, calling, regeneration, faith, repentance, justification, adoption, sanctification, perseverance, and glorification. And that's eight, eight or nine. We have five of them here. They are in order, but it isn't necessarily intended as a complete list. There are those who will point at this as some sort of, oh, these are... These things have to happen for you to be saved. That is not Paul's point. Paul is lyrically expressing theological truth. He is not presenting systematic theology. However, we still have to know what the words mean. Because they have implications on everything else. And in the context... It, there's a couple of things that I think you, you'll find um, fun or interesting. Number one, these five words, foreknew, predestined, called, justified, and glorified, are all aorist tense. A-O-R-I-S-T. Aorist tense is a, means complete or finished. So these, are, these verbs are not something way down in the future. They are something that have been completed. And that creates some 
controversy in the very last one, but we'll get to that in a second. <coughs> so we have to start with the word foreknew. And this is where the can of worms gets, um, gets messy because now we're starting to talking about uh, you know, human responsibility and divine sovereignty and when did God know and when did he know it? Well, that sounds like a, you know, uh, a government investigation into some controversy. When did he know and how did he know and you know, who's guilty? And no, 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 that's not what it's talking about either. Foreknowledge or foreknew is a very misunderstood term. We can break it apart. It's kind of simple, isn't it? For, F-O-R-E, means what? Before. Oh, wow, that's... Before what? Before knowledge. So knowing something before it happens. Kind of. Yes. So typically, and this is where I'm going to have to slave myself to my notes, and hopefully I'm going to articulate this correctly because I struggled with this. Typically, since God knows all things, he knows who will believe and who will not believe beforehand. And as a result, he predestines those to salvation whom he foresees as believing. You gotta go, okay. However, I'm gonna put a disclaimer here, I cannot do justice in a limited time to this doctrine. In fact, even those who have either preached or taught about it, they do what I'm doing here and do an introduction, and then their next chapter is 400 pages on this one word. And it goes on and on and on. And it, gets, it gets complicated to a certain extent. But just trust me. Note this. The verse does not say God knew, foreknew what one individual would do beyond the scope of this verse. Instead, this verse is 100% about God and what God does. This is not about what we do. Take a look at your verse, your page, the handout. This is another one of the frustrations of modern translations, is you find deity is not capitalized. So I would like you to take a pen, and in starting in verse 29 through 30, we're gonna, I'm going to read through it, and you are going to capitalize the H every time it's referring to God in this verse and something will great will be revealed. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers, and those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. Who is these verses about? God. Every time we stink and talk about predestination and foreknowledge, 
we make it all about us. It's not about us. It's about God. God, we can't fathom what he knows and didn't know and when he knows it. And truly, if we could figure that out, we would be God. And I think that's part of the point here. He's trying to define this calling of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. He, for those he foreknew, he also predestined. Well, let me put it this way. We, you were mentioning John Murray this morning. And here comes the quote from John Murray, trying to wrestle with this. If, if all the word means is that God knows beforehand what people will do in response to him or to the preaching of the gospel and then determines their destiny on that basis, what, pray tell, could God possibly see or foreknow except a fixed opposition to him on the part of everyone. Romans 3.11, there's no one righteous, not even one. No one who understands, no one who seeks God. What could possibly God possibly foresee in any human heart but unbelief? Even if we're granted that foreknew means the foresight of faith, the biblical doctrine of sovereign election is not thereby eliminated or disproven. For it is certainly true that God foresees faith. He foresees all that comes to pass. The question would simply be, what proceeds the faith? What comes before it? Which God foresees. And the only biblical answer to that is that God foresees the faith that God himself creates. Did that just blow your mind for a second? So if God is foreseeing, oh, that person will become faithful, he's seeing the faith that God has placed in them to have faith. It's counterintuitive? Certainly it is. Hence, the, his eternal foresight of faith is preconditioned by his decree to generate this faith in those whom he foresees as believing. I know it sounds convoluted, but this is biblical. This could be defended scripturally at ad nauseum, if you wished. We could go on and on and on. And I could twist you up as much as I've been twisted up in my life trying to figure this out. But today, we are focusing on the capital H in He. This is about God. And what God has done for each one of us, despite our evil nature, despite our sinfulness, despite the fact we don't deserve a whit of grace, God foreknew and he predestined. Predestined, it's not a synonym of foreknowledge. Predestined means to be pre, which means before. And the second word is destined or destiny, a direction, a place, a position. This predestination is the conformity to the image of the Son. Right there in the verse. 
That's the good. The good is predestined. It is a destiny that before time began, God foreknew and God predestined. Yep. God created, time is created, space is created, and God transcends that. If we can remove our human concept of time out of the picture, it's impossible. We would have how he sees all of that. Yes. Because it can only be read in its true truth without seeing our concept of time. And in this chain, time comes in at the calling. So you have the pre-time, the, oh, how do you call this, eternity time, outside of time. Then there's this calling through the power of the Holy Spirit to each one of us who then are given the faith to accept the calling. Uh Uh-huh. Where else is it going to come from? You might go, but but wait, what if I say no? And don't I have the power to say no? Yes, you do. But the spirit can overwhelm your spirit. And that becomes the faith that then makes you justified. Yes. I always think of the calling You know, because you can't call someone without giving them a name. Uh And an author only names some of his characters in his book. Uh But he may write in lots of characters because you need those characters to tell the story of the few you name. And I I think when God knows our name, right, isn't the scariest thing at the end of the story where where God has all the people before him and, and he goes, um, we did all these things in your name. And he said, but I've never known your name. Yeah. And, yeah. and they go off. Brilliant. Yeah, brilliant way of looking at it. And here's another way of looking at calling. So we can call. I could say, hey, Chuck, come on over the house. And you go, nah, I don't like you. <laughs> <laughs> you know? And it's, I've given you a choice. That's a universal call. It's a invitation. So, standing at Lazarus's grave, Jesus stood outside the, the tomb and said, Hey, buddy, we sure miss you. You're so sad you're gone. Please come back. We really want you to come back. Come on. You know, see, please come out. No. No. Lazarus couldn't hear that. He's dead. He's in an afterlife. Instead, Jesus stood at the front of that tomb and said, Lazarus, come forth. That's an invitation. That's a call. It's compelling. And in that moment, in that call, life entered death. 
and transformed into new life. When we stand in our sin and we hear God go, Oh, Steve, you would be such a perfect person in my kingdom. Guess you what? We'll do this for you. We'll give you two weeks off. Um, We'll give you this kind of salary. And every 10 years, we'll give you a bump. And, you know, we'll do this. And at the end, we'll give you a gold watch. We'll celebrate you. And you kind of, I don't think so. Instead, he stands out and goes, You are mine. And you will be my slave. And you will do my bidding for the rest of your life because you love me and are called according to my purposes. And you go, I have no choice but to answer this call. That's what's being talked about here. Isn't that amazing? So he calls us children, not slaves. I love that. And here, is it children, adoption, just all, all these words for adoption, yep. and birthing, yep. and having. And, and I think that's, that's the, like Lazarus, he says, Lazarus, come forth. Cave the name. Yeah, and calls them. I think that's the big difference. Is I think there's this call, whosoever will may come, mm-hmm. but actually nobody turns around yeah. until God says, Steve. Yeah. You, you know, and, and then you turn around because someone said your name. Yeah. You know, and you turn around. And I, I, I think that's that's the amazing thing is people say he knows my name. Yeah. I didn't even know my name until he called my name. Yeah. People have identity crisis. I don't know who I am anymore. Seriously? No, you don't. The Spirit has to call you and to give you life. Romans 1, 6 and 7. You also are among those who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Romans eleven twenty nine. For God's gifts and His call are irrevocable. 1 Corinthians 1.9 God has called you into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. <coughs> Ephesians 4.1 As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. 2 Timothy 1.8-9 Do not be ashamed to testify about our Lord or ashamed of me, this prisoner, His prisoner. But join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who has saved us and called us to a holy life. Or 2 Peter 1.10 Therefore, my brothers and sisters, be all the more eager to make your calling and election sure. Yes, this is a very reformed theological interpretation. This is defined as the effectual call or also known as irresistible grace. It's the eye in the tulip in case you're curious what that is. That is what this, this teaches. And I, I don't know, there are times where I, I struggle with uh, the construct of some of the hyper-Calvinistic thinking. This one, right on. We can't do this on our own because if we say it's up to me, then it's a work, not a gift. 
Good point. Yeah. If you're if you're part of the golden chain, it's got a weak link. <laughs> That's a good way of putting it. Obviously, we next still have we have justified. We under we've we've talked about justification extensively. But why is calling in between foreknew and predestined and then calling and then justification? And I've alluded to this before in our discussion of time. Calling is that point where things determined before in the mind of God enter our time. They enter our world, your, my world, your world. For God, there's no timeline. For us, there's absolutely a timeline. So what has been decreed in eternity is brought to light in the power of the Spirit and is energized by a calling. And this calling is when faith is brought into being. We are not saved because of our faith, but by or through our faith. And the faith is generated by the God who is making the call. Then lastly, we have glorified. Now, where this gets a little messy for some people is remember these are the aorist tense, which means they're completed. Well, wait a minute. I thought glorification was at the end of time when we go to heaven. So how can it be here and now in this context? You see where theologians start getting all twisted up. And <coughs> it, it's past tense, and yet we know that glorification is future. Well, I love the way one guy put it. He said, for Paul, glorifica glorification, the step is so absolutely certain, it's as if it's already happened. He's not making theological, chronological statements here with his language. He is declaring it an absolute certainty. Foreknew, aorist tense. Predestined, aorist tense. Before time began, the call, aorist tense. It was done, justified. It was done at the cross, glorified. It's done. It's not an option. It's not going to, God's going to go, oh, you know what? I don't like you, Carl. And I'm going to take the glorification away. You can have all the rest, but I'll take that part away. He's not going to give up on you or me. It is a certainty. God does not go, is not going to change his mind and stop what he was working on. Robert Haldane has a great quote, and then I'll summarize. Why have I gone over time? Sorry, guys. Um, Robert Haldane writes, In looking back on this passage, we should observe that in all that is stated, man acts no part of it, but is passive. It's all done by God. He is elected, predestined, called, justified, and glorified by God. The apostle was here concluding that 
including all that he has said before in enumerating the topics of consolation to believers, is now going on to show that God is for us or on the part of his people. Could anything then be more consolatory for those who love God than to be in this manner assured that the great concern of their salvation is not left to their own keeping? God, even their covenant God, hath taken the whole upon himself. God has undertaken it for them. There is no room for chance or change. And as I wrote here, we are often so numb to change, we just call it inevitable. And we lose trust in anything and everything. We say the only sure things in life are death and taxes. We actually should say the only things for sure in life are death, taxes, and the love of God for his people. That will never change. (coughs) Those who are called according to his purpose are being conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. And it's all good. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. What an extraordinary passage. So, so full. And all we've done is scratched part of the surface. We could come back to it week after week after week after week and never plumb its depths. Lord, let us take this opportunity to meditate further on the glory of what you have done for us. Nothing we can do. All we can do is say, thank you, Lord. We praise you. We honor you. And we serve you with all joy. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.